Well, please turn in your copy of God's Word to this psalm, Psalm 17, and uh, we'll read it together now. Psalm 17, page 544 in the Church Bible. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. And you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been listening to the news over the last week or two, uh, no doubt you have heard the name Andrew Malkinson. Andrew Malkinson was convicted of rape in 2003 and sentenced to life imprisonment. He served (coughs) 17 years, and it has now been proved that he was innocent. Right from the beginning, he protested his innocence, and he could have been released after six and a half years if he had admitted that he was guilty. But he wasn't willing to do that. He continued to insist that he was innocent, and so he wasn't eligible 
for early release. For almost two decades, Andrew Malkinson has longed for vindication. I am innocent. I know that I'm innocent. And yet no one believes me. What a terrible agony to be innocent and yet to be treated as guilty. Well, David understood that feeling very well. And Psalm 17 is written in response to just this issue. How does David deal with it? Well, as we see in this psalm, he turns to God in prayer. And the psalm is punctuated by three pleas that divide the psalm into three parts. The first plea comes in verse 1, the second in verse 6, and the third in verse 13. So we'll take those uh, as our structure for our sermon this evening. So the first thing that we see here in verses 1 to 5 is a prayer for vindication. A prayer for vindication. The psalm begins with an explosion of three intense pleas to the Lord in verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. And that word in the middle, the word that's translated cry in our version, is an especially strong Hebrew word. Uh, it, we could translate it yell. I don't know if you've ever heard someone uh, yelling in distress. Maybe boys and girls have heard their parents yelling uh, because they're cross or because they're stu they've stood on one of your toys that you've left lying around or something like that. But I wonder, have you ever heard anyone in, in serious distress, in, in fear of their life, in, in overwhelming agony, crying out, yelling for help. That's what David is doing here. Why? What's the problem? Why is he so agitated? Well, verse 2 tells us what the issue is. It's vindication. David is being slandered. And so he is pleading, yelling out to the Lord to set the record straight. We don't know precisely what the issue was, what the slander was, were people saying David is seeking Saul's crown by force. David is gathering around him a band of rebels, and they're con conspiring against the Lord's anointed king. Uh, that, that's quite possibly the kind of thing that people were saying. David says to the Lord in verse 1, My cause is just. My lips are telling the truth. He says in verse 2, He's right. And if you've ever been falsely accused of something, especially if it's been something serious, then you know a little of why David is so distressed, why he is yelling in distress. Physical pain would be easier to bear than this. He appeals to God because, as he says in verse 2, he knows that God's eyes see what's right. God knows right 
from wrong. And he asks God to test him. That's a pretty bold request to make. Asking the omniscient God who sees everything to examine you. That's what David does. And he knows that he has nothing to hide. And so you can see there in verses 3 to 5 how he protests his innocence in the strongest possible terms. Verse 3, he talks about his heart. He says, God has tested my heart. That is, his thoughts and his desires, his motives, his decisions, his feelings. God has searched his heart, has tested his heart. He's visited David, uh, according to verse 3, at night. What's the significance of that? Well, it's during the night that your guard is down. That's when your heart runs in all kinds of directions. That's when your imagination runs away with itself. This is when we're most reflective, most honest and open about our sins. Perhaps when our hearts are, are, are most vulnerable to sin, to think things that we shouldn't think. But David says, even if you visit me at night and test my heart, you're not going to find anything wrong. And then in verse 3 as well, uh, he invites God to test his mouth. David has been careful in everything that he has said. Hasn't said anything out of place. There, is, there has been no loose talk, uh, no unfortunate uh, statements about the kind of things that he would do if he were king, if he were running things. He, he hasn't said anything to run Saul down. He hasn't responded in kind to these slanders that are going around. He hasn't stooped to the level of his adversaries. His words, his mouth has been flawless. And then in verses 4 and 5, not just his heart, not just his words, but his actions are beyond reproach as well. David's walk, his behavior. He says, I have avoided the ways of the violent. They're the gangsters of the Old Testament who robbed and murdered without blinking an eye. But it's not just that David didn't imitate the wicked. He says positively, he did what was right. Verse 5, my steps have held fast your paths. And we know that, don't we, when we read the history of David's life in First and Second Samuel. I think there, there were at least two occasions when he could have killed Saul and taken the kingdom for himself. But he didn't. My steps have held fast your paths. Perhaps all this talk of David's righteousness jars on your ear a little bit and sounds more than a little, a little bit obnoxious. I mean, th this is wrong, isn't it, what David's saying here? Doesn't David know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? 
Well, he does know that, and he states that in many other places. And we need to understand that David is not here claiming to be sinless. That's very important. He's claiming, rather, that he is steadfast, that he's consistent, that he's not a hypocrite. This is the kind of language, actually, that God himself uses to describe Job. Uh, he is he is innocent as far as this issue goes, whatever this issue was, whatever he's being accused of. He didn't do it. Uh, he's not claiming that his heart is perfect, that he has never said anything wrong, that he's never done anything wrong, but he is saying that as far as this issue goes, he is completely innocent. It's a little bit like if you were to be accused of murder. I like to think that, uh, well, I'm confident that you would be perfectly happy to be investigated in depth because you have nothing to hide. You, you would say, absolutely, come and search my house. Take whatever DNA and forensic evidence you need off my body, off my clothes, because I am innocent. You're not saying you're perfect. But you're saying that as far as this murder goes, you are innocent. You won't find any DNA evidence anywhere on me. You won't find blood on my clothes. You won't find a murder weapon hidden under the floorboards of the house. My alibi will check out. It is cast iron. That's what David is saying here. I am innocent as far as this issue goes. And the whole narrative of David's dealings with Saul bear this out. And so that's why he can pray in verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. He's praying for vindication. And of course, this psalm speaks ultimately and especially of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sang these words while he was on earth. And when he sang these words, they did describe not just steadfastness, but perfect, absolute sinlessness. Because his heart really was perfectly pure. And his words really were perfectly flawless. And his steps held fast to God's path at every moment. He was wrongfully accused, wasn't he? Multiple times. How often he was called a drunkard or a glutton or a madman, or demon-possessed, or a blasphemer. And how many people must have believed those things about the Lord Jesus? And how painful those insults must have been, because there was never one single kernel of truth in any of it. And yet Peter tells us that when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return, didn't try to defend himself, but rather he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And as he did that, surely he must often have turned to this psalm and made these words his prayer. And we can sing these words whenever we're slandered, when we are accused of things that we haven't done, 
we can make David's prayer our prayer. And it's such a comfort, isn't it, to know that the Lord knows the whole truth. He searches our hearts, and he sees our motives and our intentions, as well as our words and our actions. And he knows the whole complex story from start to finish. And we can also sing these words when the devil accuses us of things that we have done. We can sing these words when men accuse us of things that we haven't done, but we can use these words when the devil accuses us of things that we have done and tries to keep us wallowing in our guilt. When you have sinned and you are guilty, what do you do? You see, guilt isn't a problem for the Christian because we have the answer to guilt. We have the only answer to guilt, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God gives to his people. And so when we are guilty, when we have sinned, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, and we need to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. We need to remember that he lived a perfect life in our place. And that means that if you're a Christian tonight, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, then his record has been put to your account. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, then when God looks at you today, he sees Christ's heart and Christ's words and Christ's actions And on the day of judgment, God will search your heart and test you and will find nothing against you. Your mouth will not have transgressed. Your steps will have held fast to his paths because Christ did all this for you. You have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. You'll be vindicated on the day of judgment, because Jesus Christ has done all this for you. Of course, when we sin, we need to repent of our sin, but we don't need to atone for our sin. Jesus has done that for us. So we have a prayer for vindication. And then in verses 6 to 12, we have a prayer for protection. A prayer for protection. And you can hear the urgency, can't you, in David's prayer, uh, in in the repetition of his plea here uh, in verse 6. I will call upon you. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words three times. Please, God, please listen. Then in verse 8, he asks, Keep me as the apple of your eye. I wonder, do you boys and girls know what the apple of your eye is? Maybe that's a, maybe some of the grown-ups aren't even sure what the apple of your eye is. Well, the apple of your eye is the pupil, the black bit, the circle right in the center. And this is a beautiful prayer, isn't it, for protection? Keep me as the apple of your eye. We are so protective of our eyes, aren't we? 
our, our body is very protective of our eyes. If you get even just a tiny, tiny little bit of microscopic dust in your eye, just a tiny little particle of something, what happens? Your eyes start to water, don't they? To try to flush out this thing that's there that's irritating your eyes and bad for your eyes. Whenever anybody comes near you, if they poke you or they do this, what, what happens immediately? You blink, don't you? Your eyes immediately pull down the shutters to protect the apple of your eye. And then uh, he prays in verse 8 as well, Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Uh, wrap your wings around me like a protective shield to ward off any kind of harm. It's a prayer for protection. And these verses tell us why David was so desperate for protection and why he was so sure that he would get it. Why was he so desperate for protection? Well, verse 7 spells it out for us. It is David's adversaries that are the problem. He needs to be protected from his enemies. Verse 9, the wicked who do him violence, his deadly enemies who surround him. He has multiple enemies because they're spoken of as plural. But then there's also, it seems, one ringleader, uh, a man that's spoken of in the singular. And they're described vividly and terrifyingly, aren't they, in verses 10 to 12. Uh, Excuse me, David speaks about a ruthless man who is bent on destroying him. He's like a lion eager to rip his prey in pieces. Uh, someone in our family today was talking about the lion diet. Maybe some of you have heard about the lion diet. Well, here's the lion diet, hungry for blood, bloodthirsty, delighting in violence and killing and destruction. We must be careful that we don't romanticize these men, these enemies that we come across in the Psalter. These are, as David puts it here, deadly enemies. So when you think about these men, you've got to think in terms of a parallel of the horrible massacres that we hear about in Nigeria or in South Sudan where victims are being hacked to pieces with machetes. Think about the, the horrible gangland violence that we see portrayed in TV shows and on films. That's the kind of thing that David is talking about here. That's what he's up against. It's no wonder that he's crying out desperately for protection. You remember the story, the horrible story in 1 Samuel 22, of Saul and the priests at Nob, where on Saul's orders, 85 defenseless priests were hacked down. And then Saul, like a lion, eager for the prey, he's not content with that. And the whole city, every man and woman, every child and infant, is massacred as a punishment for helping David. And, and David is praying for protection because that's what they want to do to him. These are wicked men, deadly enemies, like a lion eager to tear. 
So that's why he's desperate for protection. That's why he's praying for protection. But then he tells us why he is so sure that God will give it to him. There's no question about the need for protection. But why does David think that God will hear his cry? He clearly does. He says in verse 6, You will answer me, O God. Well, why will the Almighty God hear and answer David's prayers? Well, look at what he says about God. Verse 7, Wondrously show your steadfast love. And that phrase at the beginning, wondrously show, uh, while well, we sang of it in Psalm 72, it comes from the word wonder, the work of power that only God can do. Creation, calling a whole universe into existence just by speaking a word in the space of six days. That's a wonder. The Exodus, bringing a nation of slaves out of Egypt through the Red Sea, sustaining them in the desert with food and water for 40 years. It's a word that's used in the plague narrative when God sends his judgments on the Egyptians but not on the Israelites. And by using this word, wondrously show your steadfast love, it's as if David is saying, Lord, I know that this is what you can do. You've done it before to your enemies. Please do it again now. Wondrous, work a wonder. Do the kind of thing that only you can do, Lord. He says, wondrously show your steadfast love. Here's another reason why David is confident that God will give him protection because he's pledged himself in covenant to love his people. He can't let David's enemies win without going back on his word, without breaking his covenant. Wondrously show your steadfast love. Or look at the next phrase in verse 7, O Savior of those who seek refuge. Here's another reason why David is sure that God will give him the protection that he needs, because this is exactly the kind of thing that God does. He saves those who come to him for help. And David is coming to him for help. And then he prays this prayer in verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. And actually David is quoting there. Those are both prayers uh, or at least their phrases, their pictures that are side by side in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And that song is all about how God graciously, miraculously cares for Israel and protects Israel from first to last. And David is consciously quoting from that song. And he's saying, Lord, please, what you did for Israel in the past, you need to do for me now. Keep me as the apple of your eye, just as you kept Israel as the apple of your eye in the past. A prayer for vindication. A prayer for protection. And then in verses 13 and 14, a prayer for action. A prayer for action. Because David doesn't just pray that God will protect him from wicked men. He also prays that God will do something to remove them altogether. 
Just look at the uh, prayer in verse 13. Arise, confront, subdue, deliver by the sword, deliver by your hand. David is praying that God will deal with his deadly enemies. And maybe that strikes some of us as a little bit vindictive. Maybe we're not very comfortable with this kind of language, and you do find it in the Psalms uh, more than once. Is this not bloodthirsty on David's part? Well, actually, it's the very opposite. It's not at all vindictive. You've got to remember, for one thing, the kind of man that David is dealing with here. He's not talking about someone who loses their temper and calls David names or a thief who steals something from his house. These are not David's personal enemies. These are not just men that have rubbed David up the wrong way and he's praying, Arise, O Lord, confront them, subdue them, strike them down. That's not what he's doing. These are men who have set themselves against God's anointed king. They're trying to deliberately frustrate God's purposes for his kingdom. These are stone-cold killers, evil men who have closed their hearts to pity, according to verse 10. These are men who take glee in killing, who love to go out and kill. Uh, Think of the the Wagner Group type mercenaries that we've heard about uh, in the news uh, in recent weeks especially. That's the kind of man that David is praying against here. Do you see how he describes them in verse 14? He says, They are men of the world whose portion is in this life. All they care about is this world. They have no interest at all in God's righteousness or truth or holiness. In fact, verse 14 says that even though God has given them so much blessing, He's stuffed them with good things, and yet they don't acknowledge Him. They don't worship Him. They're not interested in serving Him. And this is not vindictive also because David is leaving vengeance to God. That's the very essence of I don't think this is a word, unvindictiveness. He's leaving vengeance to God. He doesn't try to deal with these men himself. He's already said in verse 4 that he has avoided the ways of the violent. He's not going to stoop to their level. Instead, he prays for God to deal with them. That is the very opposite of a vengeful spirit. And we see this in the Lord Jesus, don't we? How often Jesus needed to pray this prayer for protection, taking refuge in God as his Savior. How true verses 10 to 12 were of Jesus' enemies. And above all, behind them and above them was the devil himself. Every day they were trying to trap him and outsmart him They were conspiring to put him to death. And he was protected by the Lord and kept safe until the right moment came for him to lay down his life. 
And we can pray this prayer for Christians who are facing these kinds of enemies on a daily basis in Nigeria, in China, in South Sudan, in many other places. This is the kind of prayer we need to pray. Maybe you're sometimes at a bit of a loss. You get prayer points from uh, Release International, from Open Doors, from the Barnabas Fund, urging us to pray for persecuted Christians. And maybe you don't know how to pray. What, What do we say? What do we ask God to do? Well, the Psalms teach us about this very thing because they have so much to say about enemies. And so we should use these very words, lift these verses right off the page of Scripture and pray them as you pray those prayer requests for your persecuted brothers and sisters. Take these arguments, take these emphases as you pray for the persecuted church, that God will protect them, that he'll protect them physically, and that he'll protect them above all spiritually. Pray for action. Pray that God will remove these confirmed enemies of the kingdom. But we can pray these things for ourselves as well, spiritually. David's enemies are like lions, eager to tear. Well, the devil is like a roaring lion, prowling around on the hunt for prey. Our struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil. And we shouldn't think for a moment that we are not in any danger just because we're not being physically persecuted by the government. We may be in even greater danger because we're not being physically persecuted. Don't take God's protection for granted. This psalm teaches us that we should pray for it just like the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for it. Every day, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you don't pray that earnestly, regularly, for yourself and for your family and for your church, is it any wonder when you fall? Is it any wonder that you're spiritually weak, that you give in to temptation? Pray for protection. Pray for action. Pray regularly for the final defeat and destruction of Satan and all his forces. It's a prayer for vindication, for protection, for action. And then in verse 15, uh, just briefly, we have at the very end a statement of satisfaction a statement of satisfaction. There's a huge contrast in the last verse. There's a a huge contrast with the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm is this urgent, intense yelling in the middle of a crisis. And then verse 15, you have this quiet peace and calm. It's almost as if David has got everything off his chest in verses 1 to 14, and he's now leaving the whole situation in God's hands. He's prayed in faith. There's nothing more for him to do. But especially there's a contrast with verse 14, and that's uh, highlighted 
in the original language where uh, it says at the beginning of verse 15, as for me, I. It's very emphatic. Uh, These men in verse 14 are like this, but as for me, I am like this. There's these men of the world in verse 14 whose portion is in this life. Then in verse 15, there's David, the man of the next world, whose portion is God and heaven. These men in verse 14, they're satisfied with children. In other words, all they care about is preserving their name and their line, their possessions and their power in this world. But David, in verse 15, what's he satisfied with? He is satisfied with God's likeness and beholding God's face. What does he mean in verse 15 when he says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness? Well, he may be talking about literally waking in the morning and being content to know that God is with him. Maybe his circumstances haven't changed at all. His life is still in danger. The vindication still hasn't come. But he's content because God is with him. Or perhaps he's talking about life after death. And of course he could be talking about both. Waking to see God's face and enjoy his presence forever. Either way, it seems to mean that no matter what life holds for David, he's content because his happiness doesn't depend on the things of this world. Whatever happens, whether vindication and protection comes or not, God is with him. And that's the only thing that matters. You imagine what a comfort that must have been for the Lord Jesus in the dark hours on the cross, when his deadly enemies seemed to have triumphed, when he was being made a curse for our sakes, when he was enduring the wrath of God against our sins. He knew what lay ahead when it was finished, when he awoke on the third day when resurrection life pulsed through his body. And that's our comfort too, isn't it? No matter what this life holds, whatever we're called to go through, big or small, this is true for us in the midst of it all. Every day we should be able to say, when I awake, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. And then perfectly and fully on the other side, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us uh, a song like this, a song to sing when we are slandered and when we need vindication, a song to sing when we are under attack from enemies, either physically or spiritually. We thank you, Lord God, that we can have that same confidence that David had as he prayed these 
these pleas. We know that you will hear us because of your covenant, steadfast love for us, because of the kind of God you are, a God of mercy and compassion, and because we are yours through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that he sang this song first, uh, that, that he uh, came and, and lived a, a perfectly righteous life, and yet he was treated as though he was one of these wicked men, that he became a curse for us so that we might be vindicated, so that we might be declared innocent in your sight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you, Lord God, for giving us this prayer that we can pray for ourselves in his name. We thank you for giving us a prayer that we can pray for brothers and sisters who are experiencing these very same things that David himself experienced. Lord, we pray that you would give us greater sympathy and a sense of solidarity with those brothers and sisters who are being slandered and who are being hunted to the death. Lord, we pray even now that you would arise and that you would confront their foes and bring them down, that you would save their souls from wicked men by your sword and by your hand. Lord God, we pray this uh, also, uh, spiritually speaking, we pray that you would bring down the devil. We pray that you would destroy his kingdom and cause your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, O oh God, that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. And we ask it for your name's sake and for your glory. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.